Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ben. I have the uh, wonderful privilege of being the senior pastor here. And it's great to see so many new faces. It's a new year, it's new exciting things coming on. And it turns out a new feud in uh, Vintage about whether violas might or might not be better than violins. So who knows how that's going to go uh, over the next few weeks. Um, well, we're in a book of Ruth at the moment. And uh, I think some of you have been reading it during the week and dropping comments in, which has been great. But just in case you are picking it up for the first time this morning, uh, Ruth is one of the little books right near the beginning of the Old Testament, and it's about a family. It's about a family who uh, come from Bethlehem and Judah, but end up in a time of famine and great conflict and turmoil, living far away in what's considered at that point to be like the enemy nation uh, of Moab. And it's a tragic story at the beginning, because not only does the father Elimelech die, but his two sons also die leaving behind the mother, Naomi, and these two daughter-in-laws. It's a story of devastation, really, at its beginning. But if you've been reading it, you'll have seen how over the course of four chapters, God turns their stories radically around. He takes them from hopelessness to hope, mourning to dancing, what seems like an end to a whole new beginning. And what's really interesting, as we said last week, is that Ruth doesn't seem to have God in the forefront doing very much. Like this is a part of the Bible where like lots of miracles happen, you know, parting of red seas and pillars of fire and manna falls out of heaven. And yet in the book of Ruth, you don't really see much of that at all. It's almost like God is acting more quietly in the background. But as we said last week, it's really important to notice that he is working. He is working powerfully. He's transforming this story. He's transforming lives and he's doing it through his people. He's doing it through his image, through his goodness and love and mercy, acting through people to change um, the world. And last week we saw how like, Ruth was used by God to change Naomi's life. If you remember those beautiful words, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And then you see this morning how God introduces a new character who helps bring about that process of transformation and life. And this morning, uh, we're going to turn the page from chapter one of Ruth into chapter two. And that's really significant because chapter one is a very hard chapter. Chapter two is a very beautiful one. And as I was praying uh, this last couple of weeks for you and thinking about this morning, I, I just felt maybe even that there might be some of us here who our life feels a bit like chapter one. It feels like hopelessness. It feels like desolation. But actually what the Lord would want to do today is to help us to turn that page, to turn the page into hope, to turn the page into new beginnings, into vision for a new future for life. And so I'm praying as we go through this this morning, you will capture hold of something of what the Lord wants to say to you. So let's read. Uh, we're going to read in Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 2 to verse 19. Ruth chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to the fields, and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvest, 
Who does that young woman belong to? The overseers replied, she is the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any, another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roast. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she, thr she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to the town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had, not, after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice on you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Awesome. It's a pretty cool story, isn't it? So uh, Ruth and Naomi find themselves back in Bethlehem, but they are still poor. They're still destitute. They have no way of earning any money. They don't even have a way of feeding themselves. But it says in verse 3 that it just so happens that one day Ruth finds herself picking up grain in the field of Boaz. And I love that straight out. It just so happens that of all the fields in all the world, like Ruth happens to stumble into what you will read on a little bit later, is the most significant person who will become to be in her life. And I love it because it sounds like coincidence but it's blatantly not coincidence. I don't know if you've ever noticed that that is how God works so often. I don't know how many times in my life I thought, oh, that's a coincidence, and that's a coincidence, and that's a coincidence, and blatantly they're not coincidences whatsoever, right? They're God just working, God preparing, God acting gently and quietly behind the scenes to bring about his plans. In fact, what we've just seen is the answer to a prayer. You might remember this from Ruth 1.8. It 
Naomi actually prays for Ruth, prays this, may the Lord show you Ruth kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. Right, what is God doing? God is answering Naomi's prayer by bringing her to the exact place, the exact time where he's about to unfold his amazing plans. I love what William Temple says, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. Interesting that, isn't it? How many times does God want to use coincidences, what seem like coincidences, to outwork his plans for us? But I don't know if you spot the word kindness, because it's really important. You might have seen it, or you might, if you read on a little bit further, see in in verse 20 of chapter 2. Naomi goes on to pray, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And the word there is the word hesed. Now, you might not have heard of it before. It's a word that doesn't really translate super well into English. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Sometimes it's translated love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. And there's other words as well. And it's a difficult word for us to grasp because it, it just doesn't really work in any of, with any of just those single definitions. You know, if you hear the word kindness, I don't know what comes to your mind. Like, to me, I, I, it sounds nice, but it doesn't sound like very life-changing. It sounds nice, but it doesn't sound like it's really like full of power. I told you guys before the story of how a uh, the major shareholder of the company I used to work for took me out on a business trip once and he said, hey Ben, I've got to tell you, you know, you're really good at your job, but you are way too nice and kind to make it in this industry. Right? It just doesn't quite seem to cut it, does it? Uh, and love, love is a great word, but also in English has so many different meanings. Right? I love my sports team. I love pizza. I love that it's sunny this week and it rained last week and I love that we didn't all drown in that thing that was called a hurricane. I, I, <laughs> no more comments. Uh, like, I, I love that. But even if I talk about like, relationships, well, you know, I, when I say I love, I mean I sort of have romantic feelings. I feel strongly about it. You know, you can fall in love. You can fall out of love. There's a sort of temporary idea. When you say love and kindness, it doesn't quite seem to cut it for what we're talking about this morning. Actually, what we're talking about is something vastly more important. It's a word that appears 250 times in the Bible. It describes as a word particularly to describe God. In fact, it's what God describes himself as. In Exodus 34, it says, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, hesed and faithfulness. One theologian says this is the most important word in the Old Testament. It is basically where God says, this is who I am. This is how I roll. This is what motivates me. This is how I act. This is what I do. I do hesed. Hesed matters. But we need to understand it, right? I think we need to drill into it a little bit to understand the enormity of what's being said. Now, the first part of Hesed is it is about relational loyalty. It's about relational loyalty. When you Hesed, what you basically do is you bind yourself to someone else. It's like binding yourself to another. Remember what Ruth said last week, where you go, I'm going to go. 
Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. My people, your people will be my people. Like there's this deep sense of like, you cannot get rid of me. You won't get rid of me. It doesn't matter if you go to the ends of the earth, I'm coming there with you. Remember about like Jonathan and David. Also in this time of great turmoil and like David ends up having to run for his life and Jonathan says, I will protect you. I will love you. There's this amazing sense of loyalty. You know, and, and, and if, I think we find it a little bit hard maybe to understand in our culture, but as one theologian as well said, Hesed is not I'm loving you because you're lovable right now. Actually, I'm loving you because we are connected, because we are family, because we are covenanted till death. And that's the kind of love that God says, that's what I have for you. There's these amazing pictures in the Bible of the shepherd, the good shepherd. Jesus says, doesn't he, I will leave behind the 99 to go to the ends of the earth to find the one. God's love is incredibly loyal. The second one is it's about sacrificial, gracious action. You see, you don't actually feel hesed. You do it. It's action. You do it for the benefit of another. It's sacrificial. It's not merit-based. You can't earn it. You give, has said, you give your time, or you give your talent, or you give your treasure, or you give your reputation. You give what you have away, knowing that you might get nothing back in the deal. M- Michael Card says, Hesed is the person for whom I have a right to expect nothing, but who gives me everything. And that is the kind of love that, again, the Old Testament is full of. You know, I, find, I used to find the whole Old Testament really hard, honestly. I found it really difficult. Because it, it felt to me like it was almost all about rules. It was like all these hard rules that the people don't seem to be able to keep, and then God seems a little bit cross. But actually, I think that's a really bad description of the Old Testament, because in fact, what the Old Testament is full of is it's full of grace and mercy. Right? It's full of grace and mercy. If it wasn't, it would end at about Genesis chapter 3. Right? But it doesn't. It just keeps going. Like every time God's people mess up, he just, what? He forgives them. He continues to give and give and give away to them all the way to the cross, to this amazing act of redemption. You see it in the book of Hosea, when the prophet says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me, they sacrificed to the Baals, to Baals, and they burned incense to images. Notice images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of hesed. To them I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. This wonderful sense of sacrificial, kind, gracious action in Hesed. And then thirdly, Hesed is enduring. It is enduring. Like it does not quit. It never gives up. It doesn't have bad days. It doesn't have off days. It doesn't work, doesn't butt out when FOMO kicks in. Like it basically says all the way to the end of this thing, we will get there together. I am going to love you and I'm going to be committed to you. 
I'm going to set my will to love you even when you are unlovable. Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones, author of the genius book, the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible for small children. Incredible book. Great theology. Right? It says, Hesed is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. Right? That's what Hesed is. And I wonder this morning, like, do you know that? Maybe there are just a couple of us. We've arrived at church. Maybe you've never been to church this morning before. Maybe you've not been for a long time. Maybe you have an idea in your mind of who you think God might be. Maybe it's a great idea. Maybe, though, it's a little bit, like, distant, that God's a little bit angry, a bit far removed. He's not very interested. Well, I want you to know that this is the actual God of the Bible. This is what we believe here at Vintage God is like, that God has that level of love for you. Not because you can earn it, not because you deserve it, not because you've got any ability to pay it back, but God just loves you that much that ultimately it took him to the ultimate act of sacrifice on the cross where he gave his life for you. God longs to know you and show you his hesed. But we're introduced... um, this morning to Boaz, and it's, it's almost like the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to know what hesed looks like on the ground. Like, what does it actually look like when someone shows hesed to another person? And so we're introduced to this dude called Boaz. Um, Boaz is described as a, a man of standing. Now, the translation of that can mean a few different things. Uh, it can mean a man of wealth, a man of power and influence, but it can also just mean a man of good reputation. And I love it, right? You know, I, I think about what it means to be a man who stands versus a man who lies. Right? A man who stands versus a man who sits on his lazy boy. Like, I think we can all kind of get a picture of what we're supposed to hear here. Like Boaz is a leader. He's someone who takes responsibility. And as we discover, he's a man of great faith, a godly man. And it says, like, it just so happens that of all the fields in all the world, like, Ruth stumbles into Boaz's field, and it just so happens that on any day that it could be in that field, just as Ruth turns up, Boaz turns up too. Coincidence? Probably not. God is working. And along comes Ruth, though. Poor, undeserving, supposedly, an enemy, Moabite, Huge racial and ethnic separation. And yet from the moment that she arrives, he shows her hesed love. He provides for her. He protects her from people mistreating her. He, he gives food to her way beyond what have been the eth- ethical norm of just providing the last scraps after the harvest. He lavishes kindness and care. It says in verse 14, Come over here, Ruth, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvested, he offered her roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. In fact, I don't know if you noticed that it says of Ruth that at the end of the day, when she'd set out just to see if she could survive for one more day and provide just a little for her mother-in-law, who's still maybe a little grumpy at this moment, I'm not sure. Right? When the, we get, she gets home in the evening, it says she takes with her an ephah of grain. Like, if I had to look up what that was. 
Right? An ether of grain is this much. Right? It's basically an, the maximum you could carry. It would be a container which is big enough for a human being to get inside. Right? So she goes out, I've got nothing. She comes home with, oh my goodness, Naomi, look what we've got for dinner. <laughs> I can imagine Naomi going, great, let's start a bakery. We've got to do something. We've got to do something with all this stuff. Like, it's extravagant. It's ridiculous. It's overflowing in its goodness. It is has said in action. It's a picture to show us what God's love is like. Because of course the audience would have said, well, who could do that? Who would ever show that level of irrational, silly kindness? And the answer is, of course, God would. Because that's what God is like. Hesed love changes the world, it changes circumstances, it changes families, it changes individuals, it changes everything around it. In this story, not just a life, but a family line that ultimately leads to David and to Jesus is transformed by this act of incredible kindness. Now, it's really important that we don't just go, ah, like what a nice story. What a nice young man. Isn't he such a nice man? What a good story. That's not the point. There's supposed to be something in us when we hear this where we go, ah, and this is the calling that we have on our lives too. This is the vocation of the Christian life, which is to bring God's said into the world. We, as I said last week, are supposed to be the very people who have our lives partly angled towards God and his beautiful kindness and goodness and has said love for us, and then we're supposed to distribute it, pass it on into the world. In fact, it's the very single way that God wants his love to be known, right? How is it that the world is supposed to know something about justice for the oppressed or sacrifice for the undeserving? How is the world supposed to know something about generosity or forgiveness or commitment or reputations being ruined for the sake of doing good? How is racial reconciliation supposed to, how are cultural barriers supposed to come down? How is love for enemies supposed to manifest itself? Well, by the Hesed love being passed into the world. There's supposed to be something that happens when people see Christians and they're supposed to be able to say, there's something there. Not sure I get your God thing. Not sure I understand your theology or the songs you sing. But there's something about you. There's something about the way that you love that is radically different from other love. There's something about the way that you do bring justice to bear, sacrifice, generosity, forgiveness, the way that you commit to people who are seemingly unlovable, the way that you're prepared to ruin your reputation for the sake of doing good, the way that you're prepared to tear down barriers with people who are nothing like you, are supposedly your enemies. There's supposed to be something about you, and I want to know more. And I want to know more. One author put it like that, Hesed is the bone-weary father who drives through the night to bail his drug-addicted son out of jail. Hesed is a mom who spends day after days spoon-feeding and wiping up after her disabled child without ever a thank you. Hesed, and this is definitely written by a pastor's wife, is an unsung pastor's wife whose long-suffering, tearful prayers keep her exhausted husband from falling apart at the seams. 
This is what Hesed is. It's what it looks like. But it's not just for families. It's for communities. Jesus says it is for our neighbors. It's for our orphans and widows. It's for colleagues. It's for customers. It's for strangers. It's even for those who actually hate us. That is who Hesed is for. It is the most radical, the most countercultural way of being a human. I got a problem. I have a real big problem with this. And here's my problem I find it really hard. (laughs) I find it really hard. Anyone else find doing this stuff really hard? Yes, the rest of you are all lying. It's it's really hard. I I, am. to get up on Wednesday morning, I had to go and take my car to the garage for like this fault that's been reoccurring. So I got up and I got there at the appointment time and already there was this like huge line of cars out onto the road. I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna be late, sure enough. And so if I sat there for half an hour, like in this line, nobody talking to me, just waiting to get to the front of the line and eventually, kind of got to the front and this, this person comes over and she didn't seem like she was in much of a hurry. In fact, everyone else was just kind of standing around, all these mechanics which just seemed to be standing there. And so I rolled down my window and I inwardly, like I'm already at like, I'm already at breaking point, it would be fair to say. She says, oh, good morning. Uh, it's great to have you. I'm so sorry. We're going to be a little bit longer before we can help you now. And, and like, I'm, I'm just like already like right, right at the limit. So I said, look, I, I don't wish to be rude but I'm actually, I'm already late for a meeting. You've had half an hour. You seem to be just standing around. Could you please just do this a little bit faster because I need to get to my meeting? And I was just like, you know, going on and on. And you could see her face. She was not, she was not okay uh, with, with how I was, was saying this. But I thought, like, I've just got to get out of here. And so after a few seconds, she sort of made some excuse and went back to the office. So I rolled up my window, picked up my iPad where I was doing a little bit of work, looking at my sermon for this morning. <laughs> and thought, oh, <laughs> some word. Uh, in fact, it was worse than that because I also realized at that exact moment that I was also wearing a baseball cap that somebody from church had given me with a massive cross on the front of the baseball cap. Uh, it, was, it was not a good moment. It was not a good moment. Right? Has said love is, is actually really hard. Like I find it hard enough to actually be nice to the person who's doing her job trying to get my car fixed, let alone the person who is totally unloving or even my enemy. Like has said is really hard, even though it's really powerful. Right? It's powerful because it changes life. I think about the person who gave me money when I had nothing because I really wanted to go and work in the townships in Johannesburg in South Africa. And she, this woman just phoned me out of the blue when I was working in a horrible job in a gym and just said, like, I'll pay, you can go. It's powerful, but it's difficult and it's hard. I think, sadly, one of the reductionistic parts of the gospel we've sometimes grown up with says that it doesn't matter because it's just about going to heaven when actually it does matter, because it's the very calling we have. So how? How? How could we ever live like this? Well, on our own, we can't. The Old Testament is proof of that. Human beings can't do it. We need something more. And the more that we need is Jesus. The more that we need is Jesus. John's Gospel 
quotes Exodus 34 when it describes Jesus as full of hesed. What the New Testament describes is the ultimate person who acts out and distributes hesed. See, what John tells us later on is that like Boaz, Jesus saw us, the world in need without hope and took action. Like Boaz, Jesus came to us in grace and mercy, totally not deserving to absorb our debts, our sins, our pasts, but gave us a clean slate. See, like Boaz, Jesus entered into a costly marriage with us to give us his life, to give us riches, to give us family, to commit to us so that this promise would never leave us. And the idea is that when we experience that level of said for us, then it gives us something to give away. Because I don't know if you know this, but it's actually really hard to give away something you've never received. It's really hard to give love if you've never received love. It's really hard to give forgiveness if you've never been shown forgiveness. It's really hard to give mercy if you've never been shown mercy, grace if you've never been shown grace. But here's the good news of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus came to give all of those things to you first. You and I, we were broken, lost sinners. We had no future. We had no hope. We had no way of saving ourselves. But God, through Jesus, gave everything for us. Gave life, life in all of its entirety so that we could have a new beginning. And when we encounter that, when the Holy Spirit, God's power, like infuses that, shows us the enormity of that, then it just gives us something where we have to say, I have to treat that person like that. Because how could I treat that person like that if I have been treated like this? How can I possibly not forgive that person if I have been shown enormous, gracious forgiveness? We have to. But I want to suggest that maybe if you're here this morning and you're like, I like the idea, but I don't know how to do it. I want to suggest maybe there could be two possibilities. The first possibility is maybe you've never received it. Maybe you've just never had that that moment where you said, I will give my life to Jesus and allowed him to open, but pull back the curtains for you to see the reality. The reality of who you are, who you were, and who you now can become. Maybe you've never seen that. And if you haven't, then I'd love to just give you an opportunity this morning to give your life to Jesus. It's the best thing you will ever do, and it will transform your life like it did mine. But if you are here as a Christian, Could it maybe just be that you've forgotten? Could it be that you've forgotten? Could it be that I have forgotten the enormity of the gospel? Because right, if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's very easy to, you know, come to church. It's very easy to do a Bible study. The answer is always Jesus, in case you were wondering, just say Jesus. It's easy to know the right answers. But do you allow the enormity of the gospel daily, weekly, to undo your heart? to transform your life. Because maybe just this morning, maybe what the Holy Spirit might want to do is to allow your heart to be a little bit broken again for the enormity of what Jesus has done for you. Right? That's partly what we do every single week. When we come and worship, we're not just singing nice songs. We're coming to allow Jesus to enlarge our vision of his goodness. 
to remind us actually that we might be a bit broken, but that he has done enough to transform us. Right? If you have forgotten that, I want to invite you this morning to come back before him and realize, yes, you were a sinner, but you are saved by his grace. You are saved by his love. And I actually want to suggest even this week that you might need to do it more than today. Right? You might need it every single day. I, I know in my life, right, if I get up in the morning and I don't spend some time with Jesus, like if I don't allow his great love and forgiveness and kindness to like fill my life at the beginning, in fact, if I instead what I choose to do is fill it up with social media or whatever else is coming, this is what happens. The first person who cuts me up on the 210, the first argument with someone in my family, the first email, the first meeting, the first Zoom call, it wrecks me and I react. But if I am full of that love, if I have spent time in his presence, if I have allowed the reality and the truth of all things to get deep in me, then it gives me a chance that I could give away the love that I have received. And so I want to invite us this morning, we're going to pray and then we're going to worship. I want to invite us to receive again, or even for the first time, the Hesed love of Jesus in your souls. That it would go deep, that it would expand, that it would change your vision, that it would pour love and life into you that you could show it to others. And so we stand uh, wherever you are and I'm going to pray for us.